This episode's title has 38 letters. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 7 of the Beyond podcast, the podcast that is also questing for the essence of mind and pattern. This is a podcast for anyone who sleeps on a pillow in the shape of a Penrose triangle. Hi folks, welcome back. My name is Vadim and I'll be your host again. Welcome to the podcast that discusses meta concepts. Happy New Year. Let's start off by talking about maps. Maps are pretty meta, right? You take a part of the physical world and condense it down to something compact, much smaller than the volume or territory it's meant to represent. And yet there's this nice correspondence between what is drawn on the map and what you would see in reality. I really enjoy looking at maps. Now, for most practical everyday use cases, you probably interact with maps on some device like a phone or a car navigation system. Turn right in 50 meters. Oh, meters! Now, do you remember when the more common thing to do was to have paper maps? Like you go on a road trip somewhere and you bring along several maps or a road atlas that has regional and local area maps. The hardest thing about those paper maps was not navigation. It was folding them back up properly when you were done. That was the real challenge. But of course, those driving maps help you navigate in two dimensions. So how about we scale it back down to just one dimension for our first thought exercise. We'll then expand back to two dimensions and beyond. You may want to sit down. Have you ever watched drag racing? I know this seems like an abrupt topic change, but bear with me. So in drag racing, you usually have cars that accelerate and then travel in a straight line, eventually crossing the finish. Deadly motorized mayhem, mayhem, mayhem. We need all those mayhems. We do. All right, fair enough. Suppose you know your business. Now, this works well for our discussion of one-dimensional maps, since we can imagine the race cars as simple points moving along a line segment. Let's say you weren't able to attend a drag race event in person at the track, and instead you were watching a race on TV at home. Perhaps it's not as thrilling as actually being there, but you still enjoy the action. Imagine the broadcaster of the race wants to add some simple visual aids to help you track the progress of each race at home. The camera, of course, shows what's happening on the track, but, you know, the perspective might make it tricky to see who's in the lead. So they add a simple graphic to the screen, a straight horizontal line, with markings on it to show the start and the finish lines. And the cars can be represented by dots or miniature pictures of drag racers. As the cars go from the start to the finish, the dots move across the screen from left to right. The position of the dot relative to the start and finish markers represents the corresponding position of the car relative to the real track. When the car is halfway down the track, the dot is halfway down the screen along the line. Can you picture it? Good. Oh, does that confuse you? Now, let's say you're a big fan of this sport and you're trying to get your kids to love drag racing as well. You're into it so much that you build a nursery toy for your child, a small wooden racetrack with a drag racer attached to it where the racer can slide back and forth inside a groove or maybe picture a single bead sliding on a rod in an abacus. The point is that the toy simulates the one-dimensional motion of a car along the racetrack. So as your kid watches a drag race with you on TV, they can move their toy car along the groove all the way to the finish line. 
Doesn't this seem way more stimulating and exciting than a video game? Well then, one glorious day, you get tickets to attend a race in person. In fact, you get VIP tickets, which allow you to see the cars up close and walk along the racetrack before the races begin. You bring your homemade wooden toy along with you. Maybe you're trying to get it autographed, I don't know. And as you walk along the track, you mindlessly slide the toy car along in the groove as you're walking. Then you realize something. You can track your own walk along the track using your toy. If you're standing on the start line, you can slide your toy car all the way back to the start line marked on the toy track. And if you're standing three quarters of the way to the finish, you can slide your toy car to the equivalent spot relative to the toy track. And if you walk all the way over to the finish line, you can move your car there as well. Okay, is there something deep about this observation? It seems like an obvious correspondence if you treat the toy track as a sort of map of the real track. Um, duh. After thinking this a bit more, you see a generalization. If you stand anywhere on the racetrack, between the start and finish lines, or on the start or the finish line, and you put your toy down on the ground, there always exists a point on the toy track that is located directly on top of the corresponding point on the real track. Let's review this from two different perspectives. It seems straightforward that as you position yourself anywhere on the racetrack, you can note a point on the toy track that corresponds to your current location, after all, the toy, like we said, is just like a map. So it's reasonable and intuitive that if you're looking at a map of a city and you're inside the city, you can say, oh yeah, I'm right here, and point your finger at a specific spot on the map. If this wasn't possible, it would not be a very good map, right? But we're jumping ahead to higher dimensions, so let's get back to just one. So what about the other perspective? The fact that you can put your toy car anywhere on the track and there will always be a point on the toy that is exactly co-located with the real-world point that it represents. Let's examine a specific example. Let's say you have your toy positioned in the exact halfway point along the track, so that the middle point of the toy is directly on top of the middle point of the real track. Well, in this case, it's obvious that there exists a point on the toy that is exactly aligned with the point in the real world that the toy point represents. And that point is exactly the middle of the toy. However, this generalizes fully to the entire length of the one-dimensional racetrack. No matter where you place the toy, there will always be a point that satisfies this property. What we've been discussing so far is a consequence of the Brewer's Fixed Point Theorem. This is an important mathematical theorem from the field of topology, and it has implications in many fields of math, but for our podcast, I just want to have fun with its implications to the regular maps we use every day to navigate. Does this mean that the theorem generalizes to 2D maps? Absolutely. It may be less intuitive than the 1D case, but the property still holds. So imagine that you're in a city, and you happen to have one of those hard-to-fold paper maps of your city. You spread out your map nicely on the surface of a table. And spoiler alert, the orientation does not matter. The map's north does not need to align with the real north. The Brewer fixed point theorem tells us that there will always be a point on your paper map lying on top of your desk that is directly on top of the point in the real world that it represents. And you can slide the map on the desk or rotate it or move it to a desk in a different room 
in a different building, in a different part of your city, as long as the map is physically within the bounds of the city, there is always a you are here point on the map that is physically on top of the real world point to which it corresponds. Eureka! Now, when I first learned of this theorem, I found it a bit hard to visualize the 2D case to get an intuitive feel for why this must be true. And eventually I came up with the following thought experiment. Imagine you had the resources to print a paper map as large as the city itself, like many square kilometers of paper, thousands of octopi worth of ink. Let's not worry about practicality here. Now, let's say that we covered the entire city with this one-to-one -one scale map. And let's also not worry about things like buildings, trees, or any other kind of infrastructure. Imagine everything is just nice and flat. Now the city is covered under a giant paper map blanket thingy. And if you stare down at the map from above, whatever you see on the map is exactly what is beneath the map. If the map shows an intersection of two streets, you know the real intersection is right there. So of course, in this example, every point on the map by construction is covering the equivalent point in the real world. No mystery here. Now imagine you pick a point, any point on this giant map, and just stand there. Maybe it's the place on the map where your house is, or maybe it's your favorite spot in the park. And we know that the real spot is right there beneath the map, exactly where you're standing. Now imagine that your weight pins the map down at this point so you can't move. While you're standing there, the map begins to magically shrink all around you. Now, it shrinks in both dimensions, with the edges of the map gradually getting closer and closer to you until the map is back to a regular size, something you can comfortably view on your table at home. However, you're still standing on the same point as before, and as the map shrunk, it did not slide away from the spot. The spot, or rather the point where you pinned the map to the real world, well, that point is still covering its own real-world counterpart. If you were to now stick a pin into this point, you could rotate the map around the pin and the you are here property of that point would not change. And you can imagine repeating this thought experiment anywhere on the giant city-sized map. Pick any point, stand there, pin it down, shrink the map in your imagination while keeping the point <coughs> fixed and you will end up with a normal-sized map that nevertheless still has a point your point, that has the interesting property of referencing its own real-world location. Pretty neat, eh? Now, when I see one of these displays at some public place like a shopping center, where there's a map of all the shops and a dot marked, you are here, I now appreciate the extra meta-ness. Not only am I looking at a map, which is always fun, but the map has a fixed point that actually advertises itself. Maybe in some nerdy mall someday, the sign will just read Brewer's Fixed Point, and everyone will understand the implications. What a nice meta joke that would be. It works at so many levels! I should add that the theorem generalizes to higher dimensions as well. If you built a 3D model of the solar system, you could find a point inside your model that occupies the same physical space as the corresponding physical point which the model point represents. There are elegant proofs for all of this that I will leave up to the reader. Finally, I should mention that many years ago, I was visiting a big internet company's fancy new office building in California. 
in the lobby, there was a 3D architectural diorama of the building itself. The diorama was large enough to see details inside the building, like rooms and furniture. And in the lobby of this model building, there was, you guessed it, an even smaller model. I believe the recursion ended there, otherwise you'd need a microscope to see the any deeper layers. Somewhere in that big diorama, there was a point co-located with the corresponding point in the real world. And somewhere inside the diorama within the diorama, there was another point that occupied the same spot as the corresponding point inside the first level diorama. Fun times. So are we done with maps? Well, not quite. The metaness of maps has been discussed in fields like philosophy for a long time, under topics such as ontology, semantics, semiotics, and so on. But that's out of scope for our podcast. What I did want to discuss next was the idea of special points on maps. By the way, in the transcript, the word special is italicized. Because it's special, you see. So let's say, for funsies, that two listeners of a podcast about meta topics decide to play a game where they both have to pick an episode of the podcast independently and they get a prize if they happen to pick the same episode. Now, they're not allowed to coordinate ahead of time. That would be cheating. Which episode should they choose? Well, the first episode ever to air and the most recent episode certainly stand out as possibilities. If the podcast creator was prolific enough to put out a large number of episodes, then maybe some round number would be of interest, like episode number 100. But in my humble opinion, they should pick the episode that discusses shelling points. What are shelling points? You may have heard of this concept from the field of game theory. Or maybe you've heard of the social experiment where people were offered prizes if they would successfully meet up on a given day somewhere in New York City without any prior knowledge of where the meeting should take place or at what time. This experiment was done both theoretically, where people merely suggested possible meeting locations, and also practically, where a TV station actually sponsored such a contest. As you may have guessed, people would pick a small set of iconic locations in New York City, such as the Grand Central Station or the top of the Empire State Building. And the time chosen for the meetup was noon. So with no prior planning, don't these spots and this time of day just seem like reasonable places for people to meet? What if instead of a famous city like New York, you were given the same challenge in some small town that you're not familiar with. Let's say you and a partner are both given maps of this town with all the local points of interest and landmarks. What would you pick as the meeting point? What makes shelling points so interesting and meta is not the fact that people can recognize famous buildings or places. That in itself is not very meta. It's about taking into account that the other player is trying to achieve the same objective and also knowing that the other player knows that you know this. We're going to mention the fully recursive version of this type of reasoning just a bit later. For now, let's only go a level deep. You're trying to cooperate with the player, knowing that they know what you know, and that you have the same objective. So you stare at the map of the town. So down there in, say, Argentina, or Rand McNally, all their water runs backwards? There is no Grand Central Station. In fact, you don't know the historical or cultural significance of any of the buildings there. 
Maybe you see multiple churches. Maybe there's a couple of office blocks. You also notice that there's a river that runs through the town and there's a bridge crossing the river. Doesn't the bridge seem like a good candidate meeting place? If there's just one bridge, its uniqueness may stand out to you. And knowing that the other player may feel the same way would make the bridge a good choice, right? Now, if there are multiple bridges in the town, maybe you would pick the largest one. Again, it's not so much about the fact that you like bridges or that bridges are architecturally more interesting than, let's say, some cathedral. It's about thinking what you and your partner might agree on implicitly without prior explicit coordination. Now, in order for you to be able to do something like this, you need to be able to reason from the point of view of the other player. And assuming that both you and your partner are modern human beings, you both benefit from a ton of shared cultural insights and an understanding of how the world works and how the other human's mind works. The New York City challenge was tractable because the participants had prior knowledge of significant landmarks. Furthermore, they were able to mentally filter out many landmarks that are famous but are not as famous or obvious. Like, maybe you yourself are a big fan of that one fountain from that one TV show where the cast is dancing in the water at the beginning of each episode. Never mind that the fountain is not a real landmark in New York City, but a set built on some studio lot in California. But the point is, even if that were a real fountain, you would probably still select the Empire State Building instead, because you're fairly certain that that's what your partner would pick also. But what if your partner is not a modern human being or not a human being at all? What if all you have in common, the only thing you could ever hope to have in common, is intelligence and a mathematical understanding of the universe? Are there shelling points that can be derived purely from this level of abstraction? What subjects would you even want to agree on? What cooperation can there be if there is no explicit game being played? and no a priori rules established or rewards offered. If this line of inquiry feels like a throwback to episode zero of the podcast, that is quite accurate. Let's talk about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Those are primes. Two, three, five, seven. Those are all prime numbers. And there's no way that's a natural phenomenon. Holy okay, shit. Okay, let's just calm down. When it comes to SETI, our goal, at least for the time being, is not to meet in person. As awesome as that would be, the universe is enormous and it takes forever to get anywhere. The real goal, for now, is to detect some sign of intelligent alien life. There is, of course, also work to detect signs of any type of life, but that's a different topic. So how do we find aliens? Well, we have to mentally put ourselves in the place of another intelligent civilization. If they wanted to meet other intelligences in the cosmos, what would they do? Well, you have to both announce your own presence and look for evidence that others have done the same. But how? Sending signals such as radio waves might be a way. They travel at the speed of light, which is the best you can do. And being able to send and receive such signals is a sure mark of an intelligent technological civilization. Just the type you might be looking for. Just what they might be looking for, whoever they are. Now, this is a good start, but what kind of signal do you send? One important choice is what frequency do you expect others to be listening on? The problem is that the spectrum is a continuous entity. An infinite number of possible light frequencies are achievable. 
So do you transmit a signal at one terahertz because you like the number one trillion? Or do you pick 95.7 megahertz because that happens to be your favorite local radio station that plays dance music without any commercial breaks? Let's go. Everybody dance now. Everybody dance now. What about 1.42 gigahertz? Could that be significant to anyone? So some of these examples are intentionally silly, but they're meant to get you into the same frame of mind as the person trying to win the prize in New York City. You may have some personal preferences for certain radio frequencies, but you know that your hypothetical alien partner does not share your love of local dance radio, and the number one trillion is only significant to species and cultures that use the base 10 system for counting, and even in base 10, it's certainly not the most obvious choice. So how do you pick a frequency? Let's say you are a younger civilization, and your powers to broadcast strong radio signals are limited, yet growing over time. So for now, you're investing more of your energy into listening for signals from other, older, more advanced civilizations. Where in the spectrum should you focus your efforts? Are there shelling points in the spectrum itself, special frequencies that intelligent participants would pick out above others? Well, as you might expect, folks have thought about this hard problem for a while, and several frequencies have been proposed and used in the search for alien intelligences. One popular frequency range is between 1420 and just around 1700 megahertz, the so-called waterhole. These are the frequencies emitted by atomic hydrogen and the hydroxyl molecule, respectively. These two molecules, of course, combine to make water, and the frequency range just happens to be in a relatively quiet slice of the spectrum, making it a good candidate for a communication channel. And of course, a water hole, or a watering hole, is a place that folks might meet up because it happens to be the kind of place other people would go to as well, without prior planning. So in other words, a natural shelling point. Neat, eh? But again, there are many other possible frequencies besides the hydrogen line or the waterhole range. Where else should we listen? So let's look at a paper titled Plank Frequencies as Shelling Points in SETI by Jason Wright from the Department of Astronomy and Astrophysics at Penn State. By the way, the citation is available in the transcript of this episode at thebeyondpod.com. So the line of thinking here is what other parts of the spectrum could we agree on based on some kind of universality, something that is independent of cultural norms and conventions like Powers of Ten or an FM radio station that just doesn't quit delivering dance hit after dance hit. And as the title of the paper hints, there may be shelling points derived from Planck units. So why would Planck units have significance outside of human physics? The reason is that the constant itself, and from it the derived units for length, mass, time, and so on, are built from relationships between fundamental constants. The Planck constant itself relates the energy and frequency of photons. Once you measure this relationship experimentally, you can combine the value with other natural units, such as the gravitational constant and the speed of light. Both are universal. And what's nice about this is it doesn't matter how your particular civilization defines units of time or distance or mass or temperature, the units conspire to give you values that everyone can agree on. 
So sure, we modern humans might say that Planck time is 5.39 times 10 to the negative 44th seconds. And some alien civilization might say, no, it's 6.32 times 8 to the negative 53rd glipglorps. But we're still talking about the same interval of time or distance or mass. So once we accept this universality, how does this help us to know which frequencies to scan? Jason Wright proposes using Planck's frequency, which is derived directly from Planck's time, as the basis for the search. Note that this frequency is by itself is not practical. The corresponding photonic energies required are far too extreme, perhaps impossible. Instead, the author proposes a so-called frequency comb, defined by the Planck energy, i.e. the energy of a photon with Planck frequency, divided by the fine structure constant, which is itself raised to various integer powers. The fine structure constant is another important universal constant in physics, and it happens to be dimensionless, meaning that it carries no units like kilograms, meters, and so on. Instead, it's a pure constant like pi or e. Its value is approximately 1 over 137. So we take the Planck frequency and divide it by 137, or 137 squared, or cubed, and so on. And it doesn't take too long until you start getting into practical frequency ranges. At Planck frequency divided by the fine structure constant raised to the power of 15, that is, we divided by 137 exactly 15 times, we get into energies or frequencies of the gigahertz band, which is also known as the microwave range. This is something that our radio telescopes can already scan. Other integer multiples are also within reach of existing instruments. The author points out that there would be, of course, uncertainty in the Doppler shift, since the transmitter might be moving relative to our telescopes on Earth or in space. He also points out other possible natural ways to build the Planck comb, for example, using pi or the base of the natural logarithm informing the set of multipliers for the Planck frequency. Again, the author is explicitly applying shelling point reasoning about what an intelligent civilization might try to do in order to be heard by another intelligent civilization without prior agreement on which frequency the signal will be sent on. And of course, we haven't even begun discussing what you put in the message or how you modulate the signal. Again, this is more episode zero type stuff. And I think it would be great to devote an entire discussion on what went into the Arecibo message, as well as the Voyager Golden Records. Finally, let me bring the discussion of shelling points back to Earth with a brief mention of a fun paper titled Shelling Points on 3D Surface Meshes by Chen, Saparov, Peng, and Funkhauser. Instead of city maps, landmarks, or radio frequencies, the authors investigated the presence of shelling points on everyday objects. For example, if I presented you and your partner with a teddy bear and offered a prize, should the two of you agree on a particular point on the surface of the teddy bear? Applying shelling-style reasoning, what point would you pick? Now close your eyes and picture a teddy bear. Are you picturing one? Good. It will probably not surprise you that people picked spots like the nose, the belly button, and of course the ears. Now imagine the same experiment repeated with a toy airplane, or a coffee mug, or a model of the human face, and so on. The authors gathered data from participants and created a statistical model that would predict the likely chosen shelling points on new models that were not part of the training set. 
such a model would have to capture something fundamental about how humans perceive 3D objects and how we might assign importance or uniqueness or specialness to certain points on these objects. Fascinating stuff. Okay, enough about shelling points. Or almost enough. As you know, dear listener, these episodes weave strands of thought into other strands, making some kind of elaborate thought strand basket. So let's go back to the idea of thinking from the point of view of your partner or opponent in a game. Now, it's easy to slip down a slippery recursive slope of, I know that you know that I know that you know, etc. Never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line! <laughs> now note that this level of depth is not necessary to form basic shelling point style decisions. But if you want a bit more formalism around this kind of thinking, we can go to our good friend Douglas Hofstadter. Yes, that guy again. The key concept here is super-rationality. And the definition of this concept, and if you've paid attention to this podcast, you already know that it's going to be recursive. The definition is, super-rational thinkers, by recursive definition, include in their calculations the fact that they are in a group of super-rational thinkers. Now, discussing this topic is worth a separate episode with other goodies like game theory, Nash equilibriums, categorical imperatives, and lots of other fun stuff. That episode will probably take a while to write. Just like this one took longer than I thought. It's Hofstadter's law in action. Quote, It always takes longer than you expect, even when you take into account Hofstadter's law. Which I totally did. So, thank you as always for listening. Please email me at thebeyondpod at gmail.com. Again, that's thebeyondpod at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you all. What do you think would be a good way to get the attention of aliens or to search for alien signals? Is there a special frequency range that you think would be universal? Let me know. The transcript of this episode is available at thebeyondpod.com. See you all soon. Happy New Year. Goodbye. <laughs>